Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible, for the inspired text. And Father, it's our desire this morning as we meet in your name to glorify you and to sing praises to you that, Lord, we want to hear from you. As your people, Lord, we desire that you'd speak into our lives, that your spirit would move among us, that you'd challenge us and encourage us and draw us closer to the foot of the cross. Father God, we give you praise and thanks for that tremendous provision that was made on our behalf when our Lord Jesus gave his life on the cross. So Father, as we consider this passage this morning, Lord, we just ask, please may you be present with us as we know you are, and please, Lord, may you move among us. For we ask it through the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. As uh, Logos read the passage to us this morning, I wonder what stood out to you in the passage. When I first read it, or I came to do the preparation work for this morning, one of the things that really stood out in the passage to me, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but the thing that stood out to me was where it talks about working in Well, God's vineyard. Did you notice that in the passage? And with the end of this year and the beginning of the year to come, and with grace coming, I thought this would be a fantastic time to um, promote or to get people or to encourage people to say, um, yes, I'll go on the roster to do the morning tea, or I'll go on the roster and I'll I'll do this and I'll do that, and I'm prepared to work in God's vineyard. And whatever you do, don't say you'll do it and then don't do it, because you'll be like that son. It would be better if you said, no, I'm not going to do anything in the church next year. I'm just going to sit back and cruise. And and then you decide, no, actually, I will do a few things. Um, That would be the better thing to do. So if you heard the passage as Logos read it, and you thought that as I thought it when I first read it, then you, along with me, are probably quite wrong. Because that's that's not what God is saying in the passage. The first thing to um, do, or realize, or maybe do, is to take off these 21st century glasses and put on these first century glasses. Oh gosh, that looks different already. (laughs) And um, read it through the eyes of the original audience. One of the problems that we often make is we are very subjective with the word of God. It's a mistake, we all do it, it happens. We like to read or we capture the things that stand out to us, that resonate with us. And sometimes we don't take the time to just slow down Consider the original audience through the right pair of glasses before determining what might God be saying to us today in the church here. What is going on in the passage? The first thing I want to point out is, and we just do a little bit of a background journey before considering the passage. One of the things that stands out to us is that it is a parable. Hopefully everyone picked up on that. Um, in my Bible, just at a glance, and I know the subtitles are not inspired, but um, anyway, my subtitle says, The Parable of the Two Sons. And it stands in a line of three parables that Jesus told consecutively. 
The next one is the, where's my glasses? The parable of the tenants, followed by the parable of the wedding banquet. And in all of these parables, even before we get there, I'm going to say that Jesus uses three, three parables to say or to get at the same point. He uses a different vehicle to say it. In this case, in our passage, it's working in a vineyard. The next one is a vineyard too. The third one is a wedding banquet. But he's saying the same thing in these three parables. He's getting at the same point. Somewhere, I can't remember where, it's written that Jesus would speak in parables so that people would hear what he was saying, but they wouldn't understand it. You might recall that. So it takes a little bit of careful thinking and a little bit of digging to figure out what is the main point of the parable. The setting for these this parable or our passage today is Jesus is delivering it on the second day of the Passover festival. He's in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem or the population of Jerusalem has just swollen the day before in the lead up to Jesus delivering this parable. People from everywhere in Israel are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate that time or to remember the time when God historically delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt. And you'll recall from Sunday school days where the people were told to bring a lamb, to kill it, and to put the blood across the door frame of their homes so that when the angel of death passed over, they, the angel would see the blood and God's people would be spared from the power of death. You'd think, with all of these people coming to Jerusalem and sacrificing lambs to uh, cover their lives and to remember their deliverance from Egypt, that it would have been much easier just to have decided to just, you know, one lamb does it all. <laughs> we just sacrifice one for everyone. There's an awful lot of sacrifice going on. But everyone was expected to be there. And as the story goes, and it starts in chapter 21, Jesus travels to Jerusalem for the festival like everyone else. And he's going there, some people call it as his triumphant entry on what we know as Palm Sunday. And when he arrives there, he sends his disciples to get a donkey in which he rides in through, through the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and for those who could see what was going on, who maybe had a few clues in the population in Jerusalem, they may have thought, whoa, is this not what the prophet Zechariah said? He said that this one will come lowly, humble, and riding on a donkey. He was coming to be the king in Jerusalem. And the funny thing is when he got there, Oh my goodness, he wasn't, didn't seem to be doing the right things in order to become a king. People were saying, Hosanna to Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of God. Um, that sounds like Psalm 118. But when he came there on the first day, and all the people had gathered with their sacrifices and people were buying and selling, he overturned all the tables in the temple. 
that's not a way to make friends, is it? It almost sounds like, and I think it's in Ezekiel, it talks about the prince coming to cleanse or rededicate the temple. Hmm, what's going on here? And then the next thing that Jesus did is that he healed people who were blind and there were people who were paralyzed and he made them walk again. That's sounding again like stuff in the Old Testament. He'll open the eyes of, blind, of the blind and set free people who all their lives have been held in chains and dungeons. Could this be the promised one? Is this the one that they have been looking for from of, of old? The people who should have most known or recognized who Jesus was, that he was, in fact, their long-awaited king, the coming of the Messiah was the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the priests, those who read their Bibles and searched the Scriptures and thought they knew what it was talking about. They should have been the ones who recognized Jesus when he came into Jerusalem and did everything that he did. But strangely, they were the ones who felt that Jesus was a threat. Why on earth would Jesus be a threat to them? They should have welcomed him. These were the people who had climbed a ladder that their traditions had built. These were a people who had become proud in their own heart. These were a people who didn't see what all the other people were seeing when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And so they made their mind up very quickly. He had to go. On the second day when Jesus tells this parable, the first of three, he returns to Jerusalem and he begins to teach the people in the temple courts. And the leaders, the religious elite, are incensed. And they come to Jesus and they say this to him. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? You can sense the tone of how it's being said, or unless it's just me who's putting it in there, but they were not happy that Jesus was right there where they served the Lord, where they worked in his vineyard, where they provided sacrifices, where they taught the people, where they were doing the things of God. Who puts, gives you the right to do what we do? It's a threat to us. It's pride that does this. It's spiritual pride that closes the eyes even of the most learned. It's spiritual pride that will move people in some circumstances to even go to the extent of having someone crucified in order to get them out of the way. It's a condition that is not unique to the original setting, but it's a condition that can affect us too. It's something that we need to see here and guard against in our own lives, not to become too high-horsed, not to think that we're climbing too high, or know too much, or think we know what's best. 
Because sometimes in those circumstances, as in this, they missed it. They thought that they were very much in God's will, working in God's vineyard, but in fact, they had actually lost the plot line of seeing that the culmination of everything was the one who was standing in front of them, teaching in their temple courts. Jesus is the answer, and they missed it. And so to confront this, Jesus tells them this parable along with the two others. He says to them, when they question his authority, who gives you this authority? It was not uncommon for a rabbi to answer the question with a question. So rather than saying, God has given me this authority, Jesus answers with his own questions, and then he says this in a parable so that they'll hear what seems very obvious and simple, but miss the point. What do you think? Oh, I love this. Because the question of what do you think is an opportunity to show how clever the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were. This is who the parable is aimed at in the first instance. Others around were listening in. What do you clever people think? There was a man who had two sons. Very simple. Doesn't seem like there's any trick in this. He went to the first son and he said to him, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Probably wouldn't have taken too much figuring out for the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord to know that this is working in God's kingdom, amongst God's people, serving them. Son, go and work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind. Well, that's a good outcome. It's a great story. It certainly didn't seem to be talking in any way against the Pharisees. I mean, they were always been working in God's vineyard. They had a long tradition of serving God and being God's people. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind. Good, so far. Then the father went to the other son. And he said the same thing to him, which was, go and work in my vineyard today. And that son answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Just a small point. Don't want to make a big deal of it. But the word sir there in the original language is actually the word Lord, curios. None of the translations put it that way. It's no big deal. Seldom does one's father become one's Lord, do they? I will, Lord, but he did not go. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, law would have thought to themselves, well, that's not talking about us either because we're working in God's vineyard and we're doing what God's, God wants. We've never said no to God. We've always been there for him. Which of the two, Jesus asked, did what his father wanted? Here was the opportunity for the teachers of the law to answer the obvious. The first they answered. Jesus didn't say right or wrong, probably because the answer was just so obvious. The first one did what the father wanted. Truly I tell you, Jesus followed on, it is the tax collectors and the prostitutes, 
It's those who are on the fringe of society who they themselves have neglected and given no chance to enter into God's kingdom, along with the blind and the lame, who are in fact entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. How could that be? How on earth could people who find themselves on the fringe of society, the outcasts, be considered part of God's rule and reign in the present tense and in the, t- and in the kingdom to come, ahead of these highfalutin and well-learned teachers. They're going in ahead of you. For John the Baptist came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even after you saw this, And you saw those on the fringe of society who recognized or accepted by faith Jesus Christ as the promised one and repented and turned from their sin. You didn't see the same kind of problems of sin in your own life. You did not repent and you did not believe him. Again, the teachers of the law The Pharisees didn't get it. The nature of parables are subversive. Sometimes it takes a while before the penny drops. They would have been left thinking about it. And then Jesus tells the next parable, and then it's at that point that the chief priests and the Pharisees, when they heard Jesus' parables, they at that point knew He was talking about them. That in some way or another, they thought they were working in God's vineyard, doing all of these great things, but they somehow weren't. The message is not about works. It's about who they put their faith in. The decisive point between these two sons in the parable is whether they have accepted Jesus as their triumphant king or whether they have rejected him. And those who should have known better had rejected Jesus and made up their mind that they needed to get rid of him. They arrested him three days later after these parables. And four days later, they crucified him on the day when all of those Passover lambs were being sacrificed. They didn't see or understand that here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even in their unbelief, they did God's will. In conclusion, the parable is not about works. It's not about what we do. It's about faith. It's about acceptance or rejection of Jesus Christ. And sometimes the thing that can blind us or even get us off track in our lives as Christians are the works that produce pride in our lives. Sometimes we can become proud in our works of service, proud in our knowledge, proud in our spiritual experiences and miss the mark. In the last year, 
and I won't mention any names, but there have been a number of high-profile Christian leaders with significant international ministries who have fallen from grace, who probably, we suspect, have become proud in their position, proud in what they had become, and somehow missed the way. And we wonder, were they not simply trusting in Jesus Christ? So as we come to the end of the year and people start thinking about New Year's resolutions and what we'll resolve to do or not do next year, be careful that we don't do what we say we'll do and we don't end up doing it and that kind of thing. But probably one of the best New Year's resolutions we could make is, as the Apostle Paul said of himself, I will boast in nothing else but in the cross of Jesus Christ, who died for me. He wrote, everything that I considered to my merit or to my gain, I consider as rubbish for the all-surpassing gain of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. The challenge, I think, in this passage is to guard ourselves from pride, remain humble, and keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Shall we close in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for one another and for this church fellowship. And Father God, we thank you for the grace and the humility that is shared among us, where we share in one another's joys and in our burdens. And Father, we thank you for this time of worship. And as we close, Lord, we pray. May your tender care and mercy go with each of us. May you keep us humble, Lord, and aware. May you help us, Lord, by your grace with the year ahead and with grace coming as our pastor, Lord, to look to you, to trust in you alone, and to live for you. So, Father, as we part from here, we ask, Lord, that the sufficiency of your grace for the week ahead will go, through us, uh, go with us as we rest and ref- reflect on the year to come. We pray these things, Father, and we commit ourselves and our time to you. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.